Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I especially want to thank the uh, Warwick. Um, as you know, the Warwick, I guess it was about two, three years ago. This is the third consecutive year where they have underwritten Saturday at the Melrose. Jim, thank you for your gracious introduction. I'm, I'm sure... Um, I think it was Lyndon Johnson, one of the most famous Texans, who said, you know, um, my dad would have liked that introduction and my mom would have believed all of it. You know, it just, um, it's always fun to have this kind of opportunity when you can interact with both a valued colleague and an old friend. And uh, I will confess to you that um, not only did we walk along the Katy Trail and go to the Tower Club for lobster uh, last night, but we also um, watched 24. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this or, you know, get the situation, right? <laughs> but um, Copy that. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about that is how does that affect Americans' views of people around the world? It's kind of the reverse uh, question that, that was raised today. So just want to let you know I've, I've come to Texas often over the years. Um, the first time uh, with a wonderful, at the invitation of a wonderful internationalist named Mrs. Emery, Mrs. Lorin Emery, who really has done so much, had done so much before her death to really um, internationalize um, the way international visitors, the way students uh, are welcomed with your uh, Texas hospitality here. So it's fun to be here in the city where she, who was a role model for me, and one of the founders of NCIV, and NCIV is, is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, and so doing a lot of reflection on the leaders that we've had, including Mrs. Emery from Dallas and the role they played in the founding of the organization I'm now privileged to serve as president. Um, Beth Huddleston is on our board, uh, your vice president. Uh, Jim was on the NCIV board when I was hired 14 years ago. Uh, but we knew each other before then, and, and so our relationship goes way back. So it's nice to be here for those reasons. Um, I also want to salute um, Brett and Nancy Torek uh, for their work with the International Visitor Leadership Program here. They do, a, they do superb work, and one of the reasons I'm in town is to speak this afternoon at a peace symposium that your congresswoman, Eddie Bernice Johnson, is hosting. And uh, in part, that's because she spoke at our Hill Breakfast on advocacy recently, um, and that was because of the excellent work of you and your staff, Jim. So uh, there are all kinds of reasons I'm delighted to be here, particularly to say thank you to those of you who support the World Affairs Council in general, but also those of you who actually meet with visitors as professional resources, uh, who um, Ryan home host, uh, along with, uh, with so many of you. It's just it's a real pleasure uh, to have that opportunity to thank you personally. Um, 
uh, I enjoyed the, people asked me to talk about different things. And um, I particularly enjoyed the way you all crafted this invitation. Um, the first part is telling America's story. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the United States Information Agency. In 1999, it was merged with our Department of State. But it really was since 1953 when President Eisenhower founded it, the, the federal agency that was responsible for America's image abroad, both in terms of the Voice of America and other information activities, as well as exchanges, the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. And telling America's story was on a brass plaque outside the building. And I always thought, every time I saw that, there ought to be another part of that. It should read, telling America's story is done best by good listeners. Because it's the reciprocity in any kind of exchange program or, more broadly, U.S. public diplomacy program that's so important. So I hope if there's one thing you take away this morning is as you, you're looking at a program like maybe the Fulbright program or... Um, and one of the exciting things about some of the new media is the interactivity you can do technologically, although I would always argue there is no substitute for international exchange and kind of looking somebody in the eye and, and having the kinds of discussions that we were all talking about, Benjamin and Morgan and, and others this morning, that really spark your learning when you're interacting firsthand uh, with these foreign leaders who participate. Um, the next part of the, uh, the, what, the way you crafted the... Uh, uh, the announcement about what we were going to discuss today, and I do look forward to the discussion part, is are we winning the battle for hearts and minds? And I'm going to suggest three ways, three answers, three ways to think about that. I would also suggest it's a very complex set of um, considerations that you can talk about when you talk about, when you try to answer that question. Um, I think one of the, um, uh, you've heard a lot about U.S. public diplomacy. Uh, I taught one of the first course at the School of International Service at American University in the 80s on public diplomacy. And the, the public diplomacy is defined as a government's efforts to impact foreign audiences, particularly the attentive public, the leaders abroad. And um, when I was teaching back in the 80s as an adjunct in the evening, um, if one or two articles appeared on U.S. public diplomacy or exchanges that I could put on reserve for the students, I thought I was really lucky. In the last 10 years, particularly since 9-11, but even before that, there's been a lot of talk about America's image and what's happened to it. I mean, there have been government studies, there have been think tank reports, there's even a Congressional Research Service report on the reports. There's so much rhetoric about this, you know, what's happened to our image and what can we do to change it? Um, but the first answer to the question is we don't do enough. We fund this, uh, we underfund it severely. Um, I've been involved in organizing some national summits on citizen diplomacy, and one of the um, speakers we had back in 2008, the last time we did it, was a guy named Dick Martin. He wrote a book, and I'm thinking, was he AT&T? 
is, is a corporate type who wrote a book on rebuilding brand America and what it would take. And we had him speak at this national summit, and he brought this visual. And um, I can email this to you if anybody wants it. But it gives you an idea of where our federal dollars go. Remember, this was 2008, but I don't think it would have changed much. This visual, and I'll, we'll, we'll get it on the World Affairs Council website just so you can see it if you want. Um, these are big proportional numbers of the federal budget. So this is our big budget in fiscal year 2008. This next number is what we spend on the military. Okay. This number here is what we spend on diplomacy, the State Department, the Agency for International Development. And that dot on the bottom is what we spend on exchanges and the International Visitor Program. So one of my answers to your question, Jim, is we haven't really tried it yet. You know, we haven't given our best shot at winning hearts and minds because we under-resource it tremendously. Now, one of the answers, you know, one of the counter arguments to that is much is being done privately, and that's absolutely true. You look at an organization like Friendship Force International or People to People, and there are lots of exchanges that are happening. But exchanges that are occurring for the express purpose of making friends for the United States and connecting leaders around the world with our leaders for the mutual learning that that involves, we don't spend much money on that. I mean, the International Visitor Program that many of you are part of, and I, I will say there's a slight ray of hope. In 2010, we got a bump up on that program from 79 million, that's an M, million, to 95 million. And that was a big increase. And a lot of our members are, were involved in trying to get their members of Congress involved in that. Um, but it's very hard. I, I was just uh, thinking the other day that I know that there's a lot of bipartisan support for diplomacy. Um, we, I think there were 31 senators headed by Luger and Kerry who wrote to the head of the Senate Budget Committee and said, you know, support diplomacy, of which exchanges are a part. Uh, but just recently, um, Senator Conrad um, from Nebraska uh, has said we need a 7% cut in what was basically a flatline budget from 2011. Um, 2010 to 2011. Anyway, I, I'll be glad to go into a little bit more of the, the, you know, the, the resources, but the main point I want to leave you with is compared to what we spend in other ways, and I don't take anything away from the other ways, the other ways we spend money. It's awfully important. And interestingly enough, the Department of Defense talks a lot about something called strategic communication. And Jim, this is what I was telling you about. There's a national summit on strategic communication. So the Defense Department is taking an interesting role in trying to, you know, they're a lot more conscious than they were of needing to win hearts and minds and that you can't, you know, Secretary Gates himself is often quoted by people in our field, you know, the military can't do it alone. Well, Thomas Jefferson knew the military couldn't do it alone. When he called for in the Declaration of Independence, which was probably one of the best uh, public diplomacy documents the country ever produced, uh, when he said a decent respect for the opinions of mankind require that we declare the reasons why we're, we want to be independent. So first thing is 
we don't spend much money on this kind of thing. Um, second point I really wanted to make is that I, I, I looked up a, a recent poll. Um, BBC, uh, BBC World Service um, just came out with a uh, poll that says views of U.S. have improved steadily in the last year. And they quote a University of Maryland professor, Stephen Call, whom I know and respect a lot, as saying the Obama effect is working. So that polls that measure how negatively or positively we're viewed as a country have improved, but they started at a pretty pitiful level. In 2007, 28% of these countries polled, and Jim, I gave you the, the article so that um, if you want to see who was involved and in, in the details of it, that's another thing we could share on the website maybe as a, a follow-up, or at least the reference to it. Um, it was 2007, 28% um, felt uh, that America's influence was more positive than negative. 28%. In 2009, it went up to 35 and this year, the very latest poll, it's up to 40. That's still not really great news. It's, the trend is right. But um, so I think polls are one way to look at and to try to measure how, how to answer the question you posed. But you know, then Jim and I were talking this morning over breakfast, the scans that Homeland Security are, are starting to do at airports are causing incredible uproar and will actually, I think, keep people from coming to the United States. One of the statistics I always remind people, if the world consisted of 100 people, only five would live here. We've got to make friends with 95 others. I mean, you know, we're, we're a small player from a demographic point of view. And we've got a lot of people to try to interact with around the world. Um, so you want people to come here, and one of the things and, you know, that is so important is how hard is it to get a visa? How do you balance the open door you want uh, to maintain for international students and scholars and business people to have conferences in places like the Warwick, Warwick Properties? Um, how do you balance that again against what do we need to do for our security? And, you know, how do you weigh... How do you weigh that? Um, it's, it's not a simple question. So I would urge you, look at the polls. But look at, you always, I think, there are probably many parents in the room, and you know the kids get a lot more from what you do than what you say. And that's no different on the world stage. Um, people are watching what drones are doing. And if we're causing civilian casualties. They're watching how we interact with different, you know, they're watching what we do in Haiti. They're watching. So people draw their conclusions about this in a variety of ways. Um, I did want to leave you, though, with that BBC World uh, Service poll. There's a little bit of good news there, okay? Um, finally, uh, the third answer to the question I want to suggest for our discussion is that how we're viewed in America's image really depends on what you do. Um, NCIV's mission is citizen diplomacy. It's not a term that rolls off the tongue real easily, but it's taking some hold uh, around the country and even in the Congress, which is nice. Um, 
It's the idea that the individual citizen has the responsibility to help shape U.S. foreign relations, as our members put it, one handshake at a time. And there are many ways and many various programs that, that you can do this with. I happen to think the, the flagship program of the U.S. government that involves citizen diplomats as private sector partners, NCIV, and I should say this organization that I'm privileged to serve as president of, it consists of 92 community organizations around the country. Now, I, I um, am quick to add that the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth is one of our absolutely stellar members. Um, but what our members have in common is that they, whether it's Dallas or Detroit or Denver, when these foreign leaders that are chosen by our embassies, who might be members of parliaments or heads of universities, uh, lots of journalists we're getting now, NGO leaders, uh, when they come here, what they do, and I, I give the State Department a great deal of credit, uh, when the program was founded, they said, you know, we want the program to have credibility. We want them to interact with real Americans. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, uh, very wisely, I think, developed a private sector partnership um, with what became the National Council for International Visitors uh, 50 years ago. Um, so it is our member organizations that organize the professional encounters, the cultural activities, whether it's the symphony or the rodeo or whatever it might be, state fairs I love to take visitors to, um, or the home visits. And in some communities, they provide homestays or ranch days or farm stays. In other communities, um, it's primarily dinner hosting at home, which is, I think, just critically important. And Ryan's promised to ask a question, so I'll wait uh, with that. Um, one of the, we claim about 80,000 volunteers across the country. And uh, as Jim knows, we give out gold stars to, in fact, you have one, to people who really support this cause of citizen diplomacy and particularly the International Visitor Leadership Program. Um, and I've been privileged to give gold stars to people ranging from Ambassador Andrew Young in Atlanta uh, to Mrs. Emery herself here in Dallas. Uh, got one of the very early ones when I sh assured her that even though she was an incredible Texan, she was not a lone star. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> Joe Shirley, uh, president of the Navajo Nation, uh, was in northern Arizona to do that one. I mean, incredible people are involved in this program, including you in this room. Um, and it's not only the number, it's also the caliber of the volunteers that I tend to, to brag on a lot. And I always love to tell the story of a farm couple in a small community, Freeport, Illinois. And I was at the con our national conference as a professional association. We do national conferences, regional conferences, publications and stuff. And I was talking to Leland and Nancy Odie and I said, what's new in Freeport? little town in north northern Illinois and they said we had our first Iraqi delegation and it was fantastic um, and I said oh really and and um, Lee said yeah I bought a new grill I said you what you bought a new grill and he said yeah Sherry um, I was going to grill chicken for them and I didn't want them to ever worry that it had been used for pork 
And I thought, that's, the, that's what we're trying to achieve with our volunteers and the training we provide. The cultural sensitivity, the political sensitivity, um, to really be sensitive hosts, whether it's professionally or, or at home. Um, when I go home, around the country, I, can't, I tend to refer to this program as uh, PR for Uncle Sam, in the best sense of the word. I mean, uh, some of us have been talking about careers, Morgan and I. Um, you know, and Washington is filled with jobs that's, that are hard to explain to your parents. But uh, <laughs> in more ways than one, I'm afraid. Um, but it, um, it's fascinating, and I, I just really... Uh, relish this opportunity to talk to you about the program. I'd be glad to hear your stories. Uh, someone promised to write up the Peru story for us because we do collect success stories as part of our 50th anniversary as we look at our history and try to build the multi-generational leadership we need in these 92 communities around the world and at the national level. Um, so with that, why don't I why don't I stop here, Jim? That'd be great. And see what what comments, questions, and and we and we do have a microphone. Nancy, you're you're walking around mm -hmm. with the mic. And Jesse if, is. If you would introduce yourselves and just and, tell me how you happen we, to are be. Are we podcasting today? Yes. So if you would be kind enough to wait for the microphone, so right over here. There's yeah. And Jess, you just feel free to wander around with the mic wherever you want to go. <laughs> Unless I Good morning and welcome to Dallas. I'm Lisa Hart Willis and I'm a public relations consultant based here in Dallas. And it's PR for Uncle Sam and Auntie Samantha. <laughs> Don't forget the ladies. Oh, 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 Auntie Samantha. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Lisa, you may be interested in the National Summit on Strategic Communications because it's hosted by a national public relations society. So we'll be sure you get a look at this. Okay, but it's always good to remember. Thank you. Hi, Sherry. Hey, um, Beth. Wonderful talk. It was excellent. Um, and I just wanted to say that one of the things that, that this program does for our community is it puts you in touch with things that are happening real time. Mm -hmm. I think on the invitation, the first invitation that was going to go out had a group of women that were going to be here from Kyrgyzstan. Oh, that's right. Well, we all know what's going on in that region or, or, you know, the civil war that's happening in that part of the world. The second group that was assigned to be here today to visit with all of us was from Kazakhstan, and they were not able to come because of the uh, fallout from the volcano. So this program really is real time, and we get to meet with people that are around the world that are experiencing the things that we see in the news. So I just applaud all of our efforts and everything that you said today. I echo in, in tenfold, so well, thank you. thank you for serving on our national board, Beth, while I've got Sherry, you in my one, line of sight. One thing I wanted to ask you is, yeah. you know, the International Visitor Leader Program tends mm -hmm. to focus on countries or regions of specific concern at the time. I mean, the program started, I think, in Latin America and then moved, obviously, to sort of fight the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Now there's uh, increased attention, obviously, on the uh, is Islamic world. Uh, um, what are some of the issues, and how are we really focusing the International Visitor Leadership Program, say, on Afghanistan and Iraq? What are some of the programs? Okay, let me backtrack a little bit by saying that one of my very favorite Texas experiences was visiting the King Ranch. And I used to show beef cattle at the county fair when I was a little girl, and there are fashions in beef cattle. 
I mean, if you look at the grand champion from year to year, they change. And there are fashions in almost anything, including international exchanges. And one of my concerns about government-sponsored exchange programs is that they're very reactive. Mm -hmm. And as you outlined, I don't even need to repeat it, you, you got exactly what we do. You know, just at the point at where we invested a lot in the former Soviet republics and we're starting to make some progress, um, we shifted a lot of resources to predominantly Muslim countries. I would argue we need to be doing both. And that's where the chart on resources come in. Now, we are bringing, interestingly enough, some Iranians. Um, we're bringing quite a few Iraqis um, and Afghan groups. Years ago, we had an Arab um, young leader project back in the 80s, which we let go. I often think of, would the world have been much different had we really built up that Arab young leader project that was so good in the mm -hmm. 1980s that, that I, when I was at IIE, we did. So one of the things our board nationally always is trying to work on is getting more visitors in general. Because when you look at a country like China and you realize we get about 120 visitors from China a year, and they're doing these cultural institutes all over the world. Yeah. There's one here, yeah. I mean, one of the... Uh, a course I'd love to teach someday is comparative public diplomacy because a lot of other countries get the value of what we were talking about at the table of smart power um, in a way that we just haven't grasped yet, although we're getting there. But as I said, the rhetoric just, just really outpaces the resources a lot. And of course it was such a big issue, <clears throat> at least in my mind, when we closed the information centers. Yeah, in so many yeah, of the countries yeah. where people could go and really visit and see. Right. And now we, I, you, you mentioned one of the things that worries me the most because we used to have these wonderful America centers. Now we have America Corners. Whoever came up with that? You know, we fund a little space in a library in, you know, in um, Kiev or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just, we dismantled an awful lot in the mid-1990s that now I suspect we very much wish we had back and we're trying to build back, but um, not at a pace we need. Jess, we have a... In the, all right. Oh, and then, and we'll, then we'll get to you for sure. Over there, yeah. Okay, hello. Uh, my name is Bruce Jones and uh, I started the Highland Park High School Taiwan Student Exchange Program. And when our guys go over there, they get the red carpet, the, the motorcycle escort, and uh, all that kind of stuff. When they come over here, they get uh, more of the in-house, in-family uh, yeah. uh, experience, uh, in your opinion. Are, are, we doing, are we maximizing uh, our opportunity with our foreign exchange students when, when we approach it this way, as opposed oh. to the bells and whistles? Bruce, thank you for that one. Um, he knows I'm tremendously interested in the international students who spend time in our country. And uh, I applaud you, first of all, for doing this exchange with Taiwan. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important at the high school level as well. Uh, one of the points I like to make in, in fora like this is that we have about 680,000 international students in the United States, and Texas is a leading receiving state. One of the things I suspect is true, and I just ask you as you run into foreign students to do a little poll yourself, is that 
there are many of these people who are going to be leaders in the future. And there was a great book that was written right after the Iranian hostage crisis by one of the hostages called uh, named Moorhead Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And the book, you would promise me you'll read this, Bruce. Um, It's called The Ayatollah in the Cathedral. And it's about the fact that um, one of the points he makes is that the foreign student population in the United States is a treasure trove or a recipe for disaster, depending on the extent to which we integrate them into our communities. And um, it's... I really think what's happened is foreign student advisors spend longer times at work, but they're worried about visas and other things that are just consuming them as opposed to interacting with the international students. And I think too many of them are ghettoized. And Moorhead Kennedy in this book um, said, hey, some of my captors went to Georgetown University. You know, uh, we we need to reach these people. And uh, a whole area, too, that that we could talk about that relates to your wonderful relationship with the Warwick Hotel is that we're spending a little bit of money now. I think we've allocated through the Department of Commerce $10 million to promote the United States as a tourist destination. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking we need to get the travel industry and the exchanges people interacting and helping them understand that um, when you host exchange programs, if you do it right, these people will come back. Um, so thank you for that question. Well, you remember our former boss, Dick Krasno, used to say if Saddam Hussein had been an exchange student, he would have had a much different view of the United States. Yeah, and, yeah. and just to put this in an economic context, um, about 1993, when I first started being really concerned about these issues, uh, the international students in the United States constituted 40% of all international students worldwide. Now it's 25%. It's still good, but I don't like that trend mm-hmm. as, as an American. You have a question, comment? Yes. Uh, first of all, I knew Mrs. Emery. My family has been in the World Affairs Council ever since the early 60s. Wonderful. And um, we had Idi Amin at our home, and so... <laughs> We had a lot. Well, we, won't, yeah. we won't ask you what happened that night. They don't always work. Say your first, it was interesting. Say your first name. Marilyn. Marilyn? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but the, the point is that um, since then, I have remained active. And Great. I've gone to many countries in the world. And um, I'm going to Russia in the next couple of months. And so, but the thing is that I'm finding that nobody wants to give money for people like me or anybody else to go to foreign countries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. how do you suggest that we convince them? Because I'm thinking one gentleman who just came here from Las Vegas and he is in a position to have given money. Yeah. And this man says, he didn't support what we were doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, how can you? <laughs> yeah. Marilyn, thank you. Excellent question. Mm-hmm. As, and I'm going to ask Jim to help me with it, too, because it's a complex one. I mean, it's what 
I struggle with when, I, when we raise um, private funds. I serve on the board of an organization called Friendship Force International. Same kind of problem. I mean, one of my board members once said to me, Sherry, I wish we were a disease. It would help us, you know, it's so hard to, to demonstrate the impact and to make it as urgent to get Americans abroad. Marilyn, I share your desire. I mean, when you look at the statistics, we have a healthy international student population here, but it's a very small, I think it's 7% of American students, young people, have some kind of international experience. Now, to get you more uh, optimistic about that, uh, John Zogby has a book called The Way Will Be, and he talks about that 18 to 29-year-old cohort as young globalists and that indeed we are making progress. We are getting more appreciative of the fact that everybody needs a passport, people need to go. I think exchanges, we need to invent a lot more short-term exchanges to make sure young people who have to have that summer job still get something overseas. But to get back to Marilyn's point about, you know, how do you raise money for this? It's like asking you for the success stories. Um, one of the things that is... And not Idi Amin may be coming to the yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, but one of the things that's very important, and I've got in my book here, the International Visitor Program, many um, heads of state have participated in the program. And, you know, we used to talk about Anwar Sadat and Margaret Thatcher, and now we talk about Sarkozy. And depending... Karzai? Well, I was going to say Karzai, but sometimes I mention him and sometimes I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I have... I'll I'll make sure you've got the latest version of that for the website, too, because it might be fun after this on your website just to put some of these things we've talked about. So it's, it's sort of person by person... Um, I don't know whether you're affiliated with some of the organizations that at least don't spend a fortune making these exchanges happen, like Friendship Force does it because of homestays. Um, So there are ways to cut at it that aren't so expensive. But helping people understand the urgency of this kind of face-to-face interaction is probably one of the key challenges for, for the program at large because we have to do it with the U.S. Congress. Um, and it's certainly true for the um, communities who raise money, much more money than they get in federal grants to do the IVLP. Um, one of the things that we do, and Beth, you made a great uh, point about this at dinner last night, to the extent we marry um, the need for resources for international exchange programs with help to U.S. teachers and students, value, domestic education value, I think that's important. And we've been getting international visitors in classrooms more. Uh, And that's really, uh, I so tip my hat to the World Affairs Council for your international education programs along with all the other things you do. I think uh, a number of our members have strong international education programs and to the extent we support those um, and involve young people Uh, we're ahead of the game. If I could invent one exchange program, I'd invent a program that touched high school teachers across the country, Mm -hmm. you know, but how to fund it. Where do you, okay, Jim, you're you're head of the local (laughs) association for fundraising executives. Well, sometimes I wish we had a disease too, but (laughs) Steve. (laughs) 
Hi, uh, uh, my name is Steve Penrose. Uh, in addition to the other welcomes you've had, I'd, uh, 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 I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the very small but enthusiastic uh, Alumni Association of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Oh, super. Um, but uh, uh, my question for you is a bit broader uh, than some of the others, and it really has to do with some of your initial comments about the surveys and opinions of the U.S. Some of the uh, uh, discussion I often get into is that uh, opinions of the U.S. are affected much more by what the nation does or whether uh, uh, there's a positive view of President Obama or a not very positive view of another president, and uh, uh, that the exchanges and so on are all very nice, but they're not likely to have an impact on that kind of survey. Uh, I find myself rather sympathetic to that view, and yet uh, feel that the exchanges that we have are extremely valuable. Are there other measures that you would put forward that would allow those of us who support this kind of exchange to be able to argue successfully that they're valuable, even when, because of something that happens on a global scale, uh, the opinion of uh, uh, the United States in the eyes of others is going down. Mm -hmm. Steve, good question, and mm -hmm. always glad to meet um, uh, another member of the Fletcher family. Um, interestingly enough, our advisory council chair, is a, Ambassador Walt Cutler, is a Fletcher grad who roomed in Fletcher Hall with uh, Ambassador Pickering, just to tell a little uh, Fletcher story that's uh, affiliated with NCIV or connected to NCIV. Um, really good question. One of the things we're doing as part of our 50th is documenting a lot of the success stories. And the State Department itself, uh, you can go to their website and see some of the studies they've done. Actually, the International Visitor Leadership Program has been scrutinized more than a lot of other exchange programs. Um, and there are some academic studies. I happen to have done my doctoral dissertation on the International Visitor Leadership Program. And one of the conclusions back in 1977 was um, there's some, there are some studies on impact on international, the, the foreign leaders, but almost no studies back then on the impact on US hosts. And that when you're trying to raise money for the program, you need to be documenting the value to the United States hosts as much as the value to our embassies abroad because they have these relationships with these leaders. They're both important. So there are academic studies out there. Um, we're trying to be much more of a um, collector of success stories. As I go around the country, when I hear a story like the wonderful one about Peru that you were telling me, I immediately say, please write that up for us. And we're hoping the new website that we have will let you access these success stories in interesting ways by country or by yeah. um, participants. So, um, of course, one of the tough things is, yeah. is you're not really able, and it's where it's so difficult, yes. and, and where George Bush said public diplomacy, you'll remember the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing, but public diplomacy is a bit like a wave, you do it by ripple by ripple. Yeah. And um, you know, it's not like you can say because of this visitor that a plant opened or this contract was signed, which makes it yeah. more challenging. I think we have a comment over here. Yes, sir. Hi, Sherry. Uh, Thanks again for coming to Dallas. My name is Ryan Aikens. Uh, my wife and I really appreciate the opportunity that the organization gives us to meet people from, from all over the world. Um, and I uh, had a question. What, what is the 
when you talk to alumni uh, that have come to visit, what do they enjoy most about their visits to the United States? What part of the programs are, are most beneficial to them? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we do as part of our national conference, and I do want to invite you all um, I don't, I don't quite know how you share information with your members about what we do at the national level, but um, we always have an alumni luncheon where we invite two people to come back and talk about what the experience has meant to them. Uh, we're also, and we did uh, a wonderful NCIV Visits the Netherlands trip where we had an opportunity. In fact, it was our ambassador there who hosted a reception for 200 alumni. And that afternoon, there was a symposium where alumni from different decades spoke on what it meant to them. By, uh, you know, no contest, the things that have the biggest impact are the home visits. The fact that they get in contrasting American homes of varying economic levels is really the thing that is just um, lives in their memories. Because think about your own last trip abroad and what was the experience you had that made you feel closest to, to the people in that country. And so one of the things we're emphasizing even more in our training is getting people into more homes. And because we want young people to be involved um, for that multi-generational leadership we talk about as part of our getting ready for the next half century, we always encourage, you know, invite another couple. Invite uh, a colleague from the university who doesn't know anything about this and use home hmm. hospitality to multiply the people who have that aha experience where they first interact and they first realize, like Marilyn, you did when you were a child, wow, this is fascinating. And in this sort of information, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, technology lets all these messages and all this secondary source information hit you through my iPhone or my computer or whatever. But um, to have access to firsthand resources. I mean, when I look, when I want, underst want to understand what's really going on in the Soviet Union and how do people there really feel about Putin and Medvedev or whomever, I talk to my friends from Russia that I've known through the exchange programs. I tell me what, what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And I think we have so many secondary sources, but what that does is it makes you value the primary sources even more. So. We have a comment over here. Yes, sir. Hi, good morning, Ms. Mueller. Uh, my name is Benjamin Hamilton, and I've been a part of the World Affairs Council, D.C., Houston, but this has been the first time oh, that wow. I've been able to be a part of the uh, International Visitors Program. Um, question, comment. Yeah. Uh, first question is, uh, why do you see Americans volunteer? Kind of what's the, what's the idea behind that? And two, um, I was able to spend about 15 years ago or so, I spent a year uh, in El Salvador kind of helping a grassroots healthcare program, and I really found that to really shape kind of my ideals mm -hmm. of um, other cultures. And I've really seen a change in the United States with corporations, and really corporations being more accepted by foreign entities than U.S. military, U.S. State Department. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just kind of curious if you've really seen that switch uh, back to, um, you know, acceptance of, you know, America from the State Department view, or you still see, you know, people accepting the big corporations, AT&T, ExxonMobil, those kinds of things for what they do in those foreign countries. 
Good question. Mm -hmm. I think uh, actually two sets of things to react to. Uh, one of the things Jim and I were talking about the other day is a really interesting organization called Business for Diplomatic Action. And I do think there are a lot of corporations who are very conscious of this need to put America's best foot forward and really realize the impact that they have locally. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's mixed, but... Um, Business for Diplomatic Action was founded by a guy, Keith Reinhardt, who got our Citizen Diplomat Award at our national conference a few years ago because um, he gets this notion and he spent, he's um, Chairman Emeritus of DDB Worldwide, a communications firm, and um, they're doing things like inventing World Citizen's Guide and uh, for corporate types, how to work with foreign media to better effect. So, uh, they're emblematic of what you're describing as, uh, I think, corporations really realizing that it's, you know, if, uh, brand America to the extent that, that uh, you can say that. It's not a multinational brand as, as many have become. Um, you know, I really do think we're getting it. It's just how do you take the we're getting it I mean, we're hosting a series of corporate roundtables with them as speakers in different parts of the country. And I serve on their board and go to New York and sit next to, you know, somebody from Clorox over here and American Airlines over there and am encouraged by what I'm seeing. Now, and you may want this to be the last question because um, uh, Benjamin also raised this issue of you know, why do people volunteer? I get to go around the country. Part of my job is to uh, uh, meet with volunteers, say thank you, help them understand the context within which they work. And I am often at, you know, why do people do it? You know, what is Joe Shirley, the Navajo? You know? And I actually did a study when I was at IIE. I had a travel study grant, and I went to seven communities and I met with volunteers who'd volunteered for three years or more. And these were, and then subsequently, I've kind of tried this out on people. So Benjamin, when this is over, you tell me whether this matches why you volunteer. Okay. Uh, the first question, uh, or the first response, highest uh, rating, for the um, education of my children. Uh, I have people home because I want my kids to know uh, I'm not sure they're getting it in school. I don't even know whether they're teaching geography anymore. But I want them to get a feel for this. And there was a, free, uh, a volunteer who told me, um, my daughter can discuss intelligently places her classmates can't find on a map. That's why I do this. Uh, second That's a reason, good line for us to use. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> second reason, uh, the image of the United States. Uh, it's not just been in recent years that this has been a concern to Americans. I mean, you remember, and if you haven't read it, reread The Ugly American that came out 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. You read it and you think, have we not learned yet? But reread it. Um, so they're very concerned about our image, and they want to do their part uh, to change it. And um, third one, uh, is one that really links uh, to economic development. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and, well, let me use uh, Santa Fe. Um, you know, they're the second largest arts center in the United States. 
and they want people to come to Santa Fe for economic reasons. They want them to know that. So it's uh, even in, I was in Minot, North Dakota recently, and um, I, I go, yeah, San Diego. You know, they want people to know the resources because of the globalized economy. Um, and finally, the reason, I mean, there are others, travel by proxy for people who can't uh, go overseas. But the fundamental underlying reason uh, is really people want to be a force for good. It's, it's, it's amazing if you look at how, I, hopefully there's more civic engagement and we're turning that around, what Putnam talked about in Bowling Alone. But um, I always love to tell the Pony Express ad story. Um, I don't know how many of you remember the original, because it illustrates this, the original ad for the Pony Express rider. It went something like this, wanted young, skinny, wiry fellows, willing to risk death daily, expert riders, um, wages $25 per week, which was pretty impressive in 1860 and 1861 when the Pony Express worked. Orphans preferred. That was the original ad, for those of you who know your American history. The, I've rewritten the ad. Um, uh, my PR friend here can tell me if I should rewrite it differently. The, the ad for citizen diplomats goes like this. Wanted, young at heart of all ages, must be well organized, eager to learn, and willing to risk breaking stereotypes daily. Wages won't be discussed. <laughs> Idealists prefer. And I do think that's what draws people to NCIV and to our member organizations like the World Affairs Council. You want to um, you, you be a force for good in this chaotic, complex world we're all a part of. So uh, thank you for, uh, I think we have for another, answering that ad. We have another comment, but before I call on Dagmar, I want all of you to think about something, especially right after that well-said advertisement. We need homestay host <laughs> for three male, wonderfully kind, nice, easy to take care of visitors from Azerbaijan just from May 7th to May 15th. Contact Nancy Turk right this moment. Now, I mean, how can you not take the... And, and the we don't need, you don't have to take all three. We could have three homestays, right, Nancy? Nancy, yes. So um, one, two, or three. Don't miss this opportunity. Dagmar. Uh, Sherry, congratulations on the 50 years of your organization. Uh, my name is Dagmar Fleming, and I had the pleasure of being involved with uh, the exchange programs under Jim's leadership. Uh, I wanted to go back to your comment on uh, the, the kind of studies or, or follow-up that you do with your alumni. Mm -hmm. And my question is, over the 50 years, has there been a comprehensive study done, or are there any plans to evaluate the long-term perception of the U.S. Uh, within your alumni network? Uh, how is it shaped and, and something that maybe long-term can build mm -hmm. up to get more funding 
uh, for your programs. Yeah. Uh, one of the, you raise an interesting question, Dagmar, because people often say, you know, is, we had a discussion the other day, we're planning a big gala in Washington. I invite you all to it. It's February 16th, 2011, the beginning of our national conference. The alumni committee is, is together and uh, met on Thursday, and one of the questions that came up was, how do we involve alumni in this? And it's a little bit tricky because it's a federally funded program. You have to be careful about how you raise money, but we're thinking about uh, there'll be at least 20 leaders from around the world that will come back for this that we've already um, found money for. Um, in terms of your question about the long-term study of them, there are some studies, and they are on our website. It's under reconstruction right now, but I can make sure, I'll give you my card, make sure you get to the right part of it. So you can go through a bibliography of studies that have been done, both by the State Department you know, contractors they've hired to do it. Um, is there some comprehensive evaluation plan um, for the group projects, they are evaluated as they go along. Um, one of the things, and those of you who are social scientists in the room can appreciate this, it's very tricky. Um, I remember years ago I had, before apartheid ended in South Africa, I had the rector of Rand Afrikaans, no, he was chair of the political science department of Rand Afrikaans University. And the embassy in South Africa asked me to expose him to examples of integration, and I sent him to Anniston, Alabama, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I hope Dallas. Anyway, he had a great program, and about 10 years later, I was watching Ted Koppel, and I saw he was the Minister of Education and arguing to end apartheid. Now, did our program, you know, the, the educational experience I had fashioned for him and volunteers across the country, you know, how much cause and effect can we claim? Also, I'd had a number of members of parliament from South Africa. Yeah. Could they, as politicians, say, hey, the reason I'm voting on this is because, uh, you know, I'm voting to end apartheid was I really loved what happened to me in Texas. But you're, you, know, <laughs> you know, it's very, I'm just suggesting that you can do these evaluations, but because it's a politically sensitive program, there's a limit to what, Western social science and the way we approach it can really achieve. I mean, it's called courtesy bias and all of that. But I mean, you raise a, a very good, but I want to be sure, you know, complex, nuanced question about how do you really measure success? And this is an area we, we'll talk a little bit after, Dagmar. I mean, I'm, I'm keenly interested in it. Sherry, that was one of the great success stories at IIE, wasn't it, where they had a program, and I don't remember, the, I think it was called the South African Education Program, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Where they really identified, knowing, hoping that apartheid would end, it identified key leaders and brought mm -hmm. them to the United States for training and, and really created, helped create a cadre yeah. of, of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, need to, we need to make articulate arguments um, for this, absolutely. And then let's see, you had a comment, didn't you? No? Okay. Chris? Good morning, Sherry. Welcome to Dallas. Thank you. Christopher Haynes. My question to you is, in this day and age where anybody in the world can develop their own image of the U.S., 
who has an internet connection, what's the real impact or significance of in-person exchanges when they're potentially overwhelmed by all the information that comes to people overseas and to us through mm-hmm. the internet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, a little bit what I, I'll sort of say in different words. Um, one of the points I tried to make earlier was that I do think there is a hunger for primary sources and that one of the one of the phenomenon of all this information coming at us um, is that it's very hard to evaluate the source and sometimes you don't even know what the source is and I think it's a real challenge for our education system to really help young people evaluate the sources of this barrage of information that just comes at us. And one of the things that worries me is the head of an organization is how much time I spend processing information instead of, and responding to things that 20 years ago would have never hit my desk, Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on how to really move this organization forward in the way it needs to go. So, So I'll argue the value of the person-to-person on the fact that we could have had a web chat this morning. We could have had, um, you know, some sort of teleconferencing situation. But I suspect the interaction firsthand, shaking your hand, looking you in the eye, and if we got to do the same thing tomorrow where we'd have an exponentially richer conversation. I don't think there's any technology that can replace that. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.